This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. In our last message uh, this morning, Paul at the end of chapter 1 had just finished praying for the church at Ephesus and what a tremendous prayer it was. Prayer for enlightenment, prayer for revelation, for wisdom, for understanding of all that he had been teaching in verse 3 to 14 in chapter 1. He had given them lots of truths. Uh, He had shown them revelation through God's word. But he wanted not just information, not just for them to be informed, not just for them to get it into their heads, although that's important, but actually to get it in their hearts, that the eyes of their understanding being enlightened, so that they would know the plan of God for their lives, they would know who they would be in Christ, and that they would know God personally, intimately, experientially through the teaching that he had given them. So now in chapter 2, he's about to show them the immeasurable riches of God in Christ. But before he takes them to the heights of where God has placed them in heavenly places, he wants to remind them of the depths where he found them in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 2. Now, these three verses is probably the bleakest description of man's lost state that you'll find anywhere in Scripture. Paul never sugarcoats anything. He always is brutally honest. And so he begins, And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses, and sins. Although we were physically alive, we were spiritually dead. Dead as dead could be. If someone is physically dead, it doesn't matter if they're just a minute dead, or a day dead, or a year dead, they're dead as dead could be. Jairus' daughter was only moments dead. The widow of Nain's son was just hours dead. Lazarus was four days dead. Decay had been setting in. But all of them were dead. One was just as dead as the other. There was no degrees in death, only degrees in decay. And so it's the same for us spiritually. Some of us may have committed grosser sins than others. <coughs> Some of us may have sinned longer than others, but all of us were dead in trespasses and sins. Psalm 51 and 5 tells us, Psalmist says, I was born in sin, shapen in iniquity. Do you remember the Aesop's fable story of the frog and the scorpion and how they met at the riverside? The scorpion said to the frog, will you take me across the river on your back? And the frog said, but you would sting me. 
And the scorpion said, no, I wouldn't sting you because if I stung you, then we would both die. And, and so the frog was encouraged by that. He was, that was plausible to him. So he said, okay, get on my back. And as they went across the river, halfway across, sure enough, the scorpion stung him. Uh, and immediately he could feel paralysis setting in. And as he was sinking, he said to the scorpion, why did you do that? The scorpion said, it's my nature. I can't do anything else but sting. It's in my nature. We couldn't do anything else but sin because it was in our nature. We sinned because we were sinners. It's in our nature. And so all of us were dead in trespasses and sins. You always have to teach your child not to lie. You never have to teach it to lie. It does that all by itself. <laughs> it learns that pretty quickly, doesn't it? And sometimes shamelessly. <laughs> Did you eat that chocolate biscuit? No. And the face is all full of chocolate. Why? Because iniquity is in us all. Even from the moment we're born. Born in sin, shape, and iniquity. So rebellion is at the very, very heart of our very nature. Why? Because we have a fallen nature. So this is where God found us, Paul says. Dead in trespasses and sins. And yet physically alive. Dead to God, but alive to sin. Dead to the things of God, but alive to the things of this world. And all of us were there. And so we all needed a spiritual resurrection. Lazarus, the widow of Nain's son, Jairus' daughter, could not have lived except Jesus resurrected them. And we could not live spiritually until Jesus resurrected us spiritually. In which he said, you once walked according to the course of this world. World there is cosmos. Uh, and it means the systems of this world. And the course of this world is the flow of this world according to the systems of this world. And we know that the, the tenor of this world is not for God. It's against God. We know that the course of this world currently is against the things of God. Family, which is one of the very central building blocks of all society that God instituted way back there in the Garden of Eden, is continually under attack. And we see that even the gender issues of today even children are under attack and they're going to be confused if not worse but that's the course of this world where the things in scripture that are an abomination to God are acceptable and lauded by man that's the course of this world and we once walked according to the course of this world according to the prince of the power of the air, 
which is Satan, of course. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. It's amazing just how much we actually were being controlled by Satan and for the most part we didn't even know. Now Satan, as you know, is, is one individual being. Not like God who can be everywhere at once because he's omniscient. But, or he's omnipresent, I should say, but Satan can only be one place at one time. But because he's got lots of forces under his control, and because he, he deceives the world, the whole world is deceived by him. Uh, therefore, he can control how we think and how we feel and how we act. And that's what he's currently doing to the greater part of this world. The spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. 2 Corinthians 4 and 4 says, Who minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. So by and large, the world is blinded by the God of this world, which is Satan. And we were blinded too. We too, to one degree or other, walked according to the course of this world. Blatant sin blinds people. It literally blinds them. But self-righteousness also blinds people. People who feel, well, I believe that Jesus came to this earth. I believe that he died on the cross. I even believe that he died for sinners, but not me. He only died for great sinners, and I'm not a great sinner. I'm a little one. I slip up from time to time, but I'm not a great sinner. So he didn't need to die for me, but that's self-righteousness, and that blinds people to the reality of who they are and who God sees they are is lost. Among whom also we conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. This is a terrible indictment on humanity. And Paul is letting us know how far we had sunk and how far God had to reach down to lift us up. Paul says we were no different than anybody else. We're all selfish, self-serving, demanding our own way. Do others before they do you is the motto of many, isn't it? I, me, my. It's at the heart of most of our troubles. It's a fallen, unregenerate human nature is self-indulgent. Number one, first, that's me. So we excuse our behavior that we condemn in others. That's what we're like. And so without Christ and being self-reliant, we continually fall short of the glory of God and we sin. None of us, the Bible says, are righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. says we were children of 
wrath. In other words, God's wrath was upon us. You say, but doesn't the Bible say that Jesus came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world? Yes. But if you read on in John 3, you'll see, he says, but the world is condemned already. He didn't have to condemn it. It's already condemned. It's already under the wrath of God. And even though we didn't realize that, and even though we maybe never even thought about that, and even though people just, lots of people just even know that, but the reality is we were under the very wrath of God. We were condemned. Hmm. In Hebrews chapter 6, the writer here, verse 26, says, If we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. Anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much more punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. People doesn't like you to preach about that. They like you to preach about the love of God and the grace of God and the mercy of God and the compassion of God. But not the justice of God, not the wrath of God. But the reality is, if we're not saved, we are under the wrath of God. And there's only one way we're going to get out from under that. And so, Without Christ, we're undone, we're lost, we're hopeless, we're hell-bound, we're condemned, we're under the wrath of God, but God, the next verse says, but God. Now, if you're reading an NIV, it doesn't say that, and it should, and I wish that it did, because the way that it's written here is the correct way. This is the intervention of God. And without this but God, then we would not have been saved. We would have been eternally lost forever, condemned forever. But God, God intervened. It's all by his initiative. There was nothing we could do. We were dead to God. Dead. Spiritually, but God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. I hope that verse is underlined in your Bible. That's the defining moment. That's when everything changed for you and me tonight. But God. Where would we be without that but God? 
The word rich here is interesting. The word rich, riches, appears 23 times in the New Testament. 15 of those times it was used by Paul. It was one of Paul's favorite words. Now in Greek mythology, Pluto was the god of wealth. And it's from that word Pluto that we get the word for riches in the New Testament, Plutos. And from that word Plutos, we get Plutocrat. And a Plutocrat is somebody, somebody who rules by reason of their wealth. Think of the, the kings and the sheikhs and the princes in Saudi Arabia. Think of how they rule by reason of their wealth. They hold the whole world to ransom over petrol prices. They control it. They rule by reason of their what they're plutocrats. That's what that means. George Soros, who's a Hungarian-American, who's a multi-billionaire. Recently, he, he pumped $18 billion of his own money into a foundation to help to change ideas and even the very direction that governments are going. He has pumped untold millions into the pro-abortion lobbies. Untold millions into the Equal Marriage Acts. Untold millions. Now he's involved in the Brexit thing. He's pumping hundreds of thousands into the anti-Brexit lobbies in order to fight against the government. He uses his wealth to influence even nations and governments. That's what a plutocrat is. Another favorite word of Paul was grace. He used it more than any New Testament writer. Over a hundred times he used this word grace. He made it a very special word for Christians. It was a general Greek term that was used, but he turned it around and made it especially useful and a word that Christians loved, grace. God rules by his riches, by his wealth, which is grace and mercy. God is immeasurably rich in grace and mercy, and he uses that to influence, to rule in lives. He's ruling your life and my life by his grace and mercy tonight. Thank you, Lord. He influences us by his grace and mercy. In Ephesians 1 and 7, Paul talks about the riches of his grace. Ephesians 2, 7, the exceeding riches of his grace. In Ephesians 3, 8, the unsearchable riches of his grace. And in Romans 2 and 4, he talks about the riches of his goodness. These are Paul's superlatives. He loves to build on these words until he, he can't think of anything better to say. Generally speaking, the riches of his goodness speaks to us of his care for us in creation. God created this world for us, and it's teeming with life. 
and the oceans are abundant with creatures. And there's great rolling prairies and savannas and the growth is all over the world to sustain us. And so the goodness of God speaks of his, his care over us in creation, but the riches of his grace speaks, over, speaks to us about his care for us in Christ. One speaks of his provision, the other speaks of his pardon. And both of them are immeasurable. If God loved us even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, how much more does he love us because we're in Christ his son? <laughs> I love what Lehman Strauss says. He says that there were three things working against us in verses 1 and 3. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Among whom we also conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and the mind. We were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. The world and the flesh and the devil worked against us. But then he said in verses 4 and 5, there are three things working for us. Mercy and love and grace. Thank you, Jesus. The God who is rich in mercy because of his great love wherewith he loved us. By grace you have been saved. So for everything that's working against you, God has got something better working for you. The world and the flesh and the devil are working against you continually, but grace and mercy and love is working for you continually. And grace and mercy and love is better than the world and the flesh and the devil. Then he said the result of these three things, the result of that, these three things happened to us. Verse 6, he has made us alive together with Christ. He has raised us up together with Christ. He's made us sit together with Christ in the heavenly places. We have gone from being dead in trespasses and sins to being alive with Christ in the heavenly places. How did that happen? because he sent his son to die on the cross to take the punishment for our sins and then to die and to be buried in that grave and then for his body to be resurrected back to life and then to be seated at his right hand. It cost everything to get us from being dead in sins to being alive in Christ. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. I love that, in his kindness towards us. God owes us nothing. And we really should get that into our brain. He owes us nothing. He is not indebted to us in any shape, form, or fashion. We are wholly indebted to him. 
The reason I say that is because sometimes we think he owes us. God, why did you do this for me? As if you owe me God. No. He's God. He doesn't owe anybody. Certainly doesn't owe us. Anything he gives to us is his grace, his mercy, and his kindness. And we need to be eternally grateful for that. He does give us lots, but it's only because his grace and mercy and kindness. And thank God for that. And it's towards us in Christ Jesus. The exceeding riches of his grace. How much we limit grace if we only think of grace in terms of our sins, forgiveness for our sins. It's wonderful to be forgiven your sins. And it's only by the grace of God that you will be forgiven your sins. But grace doesn't stop there. Grace empowers us to live for Christ. It empowers us for ministry. It empowers us for kingdom living. It empowers us for service of the great king. It empowers us for eternity. For all that we will have to do for him in eternity. It's the grace of God that will empower us to do that. The exceeding riches of his grace. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3, because the Corinthians were falling out amongst each other, they were taking each other literally to court. And he says, what? Is there nobody among you can sort this out that you're going to go before the unbelievers? Do you not know that one day you will judge the very angels? <laughs> Did you ever read that and think, I haven't shake your head and say, what in the world does that mean? Judge the angels? Me? One day judging angels? Well, we'll need the grace of God for that, won't we? We'll not do that in our own strength, our own wisdom. We'll need God's grace. And then probably one of the most famous verses in Scripture, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Remember, we were dead spiritually. There was no life of God in us. We were condemned. We were sold under sin. We were slaves to Satan, lost and undone without hope in this world. But God, but God, but God, with his grace and mercy, gave us the very faith to believe him. We didn't have it. We were dead, remember. Dead people doesn't have anything. Over the years, I have seen many, many dead bodies, and they don't have anything to give. They can't speak, they can't see, they can't feel, they can't hear, they can't touch, they can't do anything. They're dead. And we were dead spiritually like that. And God in his mercy and his grace gave us the faith to believe him. It's all of God, isn't it? And this is what Paul is trying to get through to these Ephesians. Everything you've got is all of God. It's all of his grace. It's all of his mercy. It's all of his kindness. Even the very faith he gave you to believe him, it came from him. He didn't have it. He gave it to you. 
Yeah, you have faith to sit down in that chair. That's a normal, natural human faith. But that's not the same faith as to believe in Christ, his son, for your eternal salvation. God had to give you that faith to believe that. And thank God he did. Not of works so that none of us could boast. Not that we could say, well, it was me. It was my great faith. It was my wonderful works. No. Because <laughs> then we would boast. Then we would say, well, I'm better than she is. I'm better than he is. No, no. I have nothing. He is nothing. She's nothing. We're all the same. Foot of the cross is level, isn't it? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He just finished saying, listen, you didn't get saved by works. Make sure you know that, he said. You did not get saved by works, but now that you are saved, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let me just deal with that first of all. Workmanship. Poema. Where we get poem from. A poem is something that is creatively, artistically, cleverly designed by a poet. And there are some beautiful, famous poems, memorable, lovely. But when you read a poem in a book, and even though it's the best poem that's ever written, when you read it in a book, that book may have parchment leaves. It may be leather bound with gilt edges. But when you read that poem, you think, the man or the woman that wrote this is brilliant. What a wordsmith. What, what an imagination. Somebody sent me a, a YouTube video on Saturday night. And I don't know if you've ever seen this. It, it, I'm going to tell you what it is so you can look it up. It's worth looking up. It's John Piper, and it's called The Innkeeper. And he wrote it, and he narrated it himself. So you can look it up. Look it up tonight when you come. John Piper, The Innkeeper. And it's a story about Christ just before, a couple of weeks before he gets crucified. He goes, of course, this is in his imagination. He goes, and he looks out the innkeeper where he was born as a baby. And, and it's built around that whole story. And it's fascinating. And it's wonderful. And it's touching and moving. It's good to listen to. It takes a few minutes for you to listen to it. But it's brilliant. And I'm thinking, when I'm looking at this and listening to it, I'm thinking, that is brilliant. What a sanctified imagination that man's got to write that, to come up with it, to think about it, and to put it down. And even though it's not traditionally a poem, 
But get the principle I'm saying. So Paul says we are like one of God's palms. He creatively put us together for his glory. That's a wonderful thing. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, the psalmist said. And he's only talking about our, our human body. But what about our spirit? What about our soul? We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Before we were lost, before we were condemned, before the wrath of God abided on us, before we were dead and trespassed and sin, but now we are a new creation created in Christ Jesus. And what a new creation we are. How much we have changed. And it's not us, it's him in us. Which, for we, as, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now he said, you didn't get saved by your good works. But now that you are saved, God expects you to do good works. In fact, he has prepared for you good works for you to do since you could see it you see there's people who say well it's all God's grace and, and, and works doesn't matter we're saved by God's grace that's all you need to know well Paul doesn't say that we are saved by God's grace through faith but having been saved by grace through faith then God expects good works to come through our life which he has prepared beforehand for us to do are you still with me? John Calvin, the great theologian, said, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. Isn't that good? It's faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies is never alone. It's followed by works. The little book of James, which Martin Luther didn't like, he thought it was a book of straw because Jane talked about works. But no matter how good, no matter how good Luther was, he wasn't as good as James. In James chapter 2, verse 14, what does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If her brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and if one of you say to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith, I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there's one God you do well? Well, even the very demons believe that and they tremble. But do you want to know, a foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? Do you see that faith was working together with his works, and by works faith has made perfect? 
that the scripture was filled, which said, fulfilled, which said, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. So you see then, a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the hearted also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. So James is talking about the fruit of faith is works. If you have faith, then you will have works. Your works doesn't save you, but once you're saved, then the evidence of your faith is your works. What flows from that? Roman Catholic theology teaches that we are, like us, teaches that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ. Fair enough. But then God produces works in us, and by our faith and our works, they say, then we are justified. Protestant theology believes in works also, but that works follow justification by faith. It is the evidence for it, as James just said in his epistle. James Boyce, he says, in Catholic theology, faith plus works equals justification. But Protestant theology says faith equals justification plus works. And there's a world of difference. And we need to know the difference. Because there are tons of people out there who believe that their works will save them, and they won't. They'll go to lost eternity believing that, and it won't. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of works, so that none of us can boast. But having been saved, having been justified by faith and grace, then we do the works that has been prepared for us from before the foundation of the world. Donald Gray Barnhouse, I'll close with this. Many years ago, he gave an illustration of balancing scales. Remember the old scales he used to be? You know, you, you put a weight in one and then you put potatoes or whatever it was in the other one and you try to get them to balance. Well, he says that God puts a pound of his righteousness on the scale. And then men come along and take the very worst of them, the very worst of men, and they maybe have just, maybe even less than an ounce of good works in them. And they would come and put that on the scale. Would that balance? Of course not. But then take somebody who's a decent person, a good living person. They pay 20 shillings in the pound, or 100p as it is today, and they're fair and decent. And, and maybe they would have four or five or six ounces of good works in their life. Would that balance the scale? No. It takes somebody, for instance, who's really, really good, who's such a lovely person, who helps everybody, who does things for people, who's compassionate, who, who just wants to bless people. And they have lots of good works. 
They maybe have 11 or 12, even 13 ounces of good works. Would that balance the scale? No. Nobody can balance that scale. Christ comes along and he saves us and he cleanses us and he makes us his sons and his daughters and he takes our sin away and he took it to the cross and he paid the penalty for it on the cross and he wiped that slate clean but he didn't leave it there what did he do after? he gave us his righteousness that's the great exchange. He took our sin and gave us his righteousness. Now with his righteousness, then we can go on the scale. Then it can be balanced because it's not our works that's doing it, it's his righteousness. Isn't the gospel wonderful? Isn't it so good? Isn't God so merciful? Doesn't he love us that much? His kindness, his mercy, his grace, he's so rich in it, the immeasurable riches of God in Christ Jesus. And so we've got to stop there tonight. We will continue, but we've got to stop here tonight. I love Ephesians, and I hope you fall in love with it too. I hope you read it in different translations and get different flavors of it. But always come back to the old King James, or at least the new King James I'm in, and just read it again and again and just soak yourself in it, the truth in it, and put yourself in it. Say, this is God speaking to me. Not 2,000 years ago to that church in Ephesus, but to me. This is what God wants me to know and me to understand, for me to live. Glory to God. Let's pray. Lord, sometimes whenever we read your word, we just, we just can hardly fathom it. It's just almost beyond our imagination, just how merciful and good you are to us. And so we thank you that you found us dead in trespasses and sins, but you didn't leave us there. Lord, you lifted us up by your grace and mercy, and you set our feet upon a rock. And we thank you for that tonight. We bless you that we are saved, washed in the blood of the Lamb, fit for God's heaven because of Christ's grace and mercy. So we give you thanks tonight. Lead us into this week. Let your presence be upon us. Let your favor be upon us. And Lord, may we be a blessing to those whom we meet and touch. May our lives be a reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ in all that we say and do. And we give you the honor and we give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.